All right, John chapter 17, we'll read the first 11 verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is the life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your words unto us, that we might appreciate Christ Jesus, the work that he has accomplished ever in obedience to his Father, and that we are recipients of the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, This is a wonderful section of Scripture. I, I know people refer to it frequently. It is what they refer to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and we're going to see that in a minute here when I, I set some things before us here. One of the things I want us to appreciate in the Scripture, I like looking at patterns and seeing uh, big-picture patterns in the Scripture. And you're going to see, I hope, a pattern in Scripture in the Gospel of John that manifests itself in the way that the church conducts itself. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the church is right at its inception, it's just being birthed, the Holy Spirit is being poured out, and many people are being saved in Jerusalem, we see that the people are going from house to house. They're worshiping very much like we are. Um, And while they are doing that, while they are coming together in uh, house to house, it says that they, quote, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayer. So we appreciate the order here of intimacy, that first it's doctrine, then it's fellowship. If you don't have a common doctrine, if we don't appreciate and understand and agree on who Jesus is and uh, whom he came to save, you know, who he did it for, if we don't agree on the basics of who Christ is, why well, we certainly cannot have fellowship. So it starts with doctrine, moves to fellowship, then the breaking of bread, and then uh, they pray together. And breaking of bread, we can certainly understand, is that they're taking a meal together in a superficial understanding. But the breaking of bread is, since Jesus is the manna from heaven, when we open up the scriptures and reveal Christ in them, we are breaking bread. We open up Christ and we are going home fed with the spiritual truths that are associated with 
with Christ. And so Christ does the same thing. He was always talking about himself. Um, and so he was always breaking bread with his disciples. But now we move into this most intimate of, of things that they do when they worship, and that is prayer. Now, we can appreciate that the original church was quite pure. You recall in Acts chapter 5 what took place with respect to Ananias and Sapphira. The uh, disciples were coming in, uh, people that had been saved by the Lord were coming in, and they were uh, having all things in common. They were placing their money at the feet of the apostles. And um, Ananias and Sapphira held some back, which was not their sin. What their sin was lying about it. They lied to God. They lied to the Holy Ghost. And so they both fell down dead. So God was working very hard to keep his church pure at that time. And it does say that, and fear came upon all of them. So people were very serious about coming and worshiping God. You would not want to go into a group of people that were worshiping the Lord if you were not a regenerated Christian. And that is something that the church today does not appreciate in the context that they flip the verses around in the Bible in Matthew 28 where the Lord tells his disciples to go out into the world and make disciples of people. And that's what you see all throughout the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, being sent by the Lord, is going out into the world and he's preaching the gospel. And then after the people receive the gospel, you know, he goes into synagogues because that's where the Jews are gathered. So he goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile and he preaches the gospels. And then those that hear it, those in whom receive... Um, you know, the gift of eternal life, those whom the Holy Ghost uh, indwells, then they coalesce and come together and, um, and worship the Lord. And so we should ever appreciate that. So as they gather here, we can appreciate that as the Lord moves to greater and greater intimacy, now he's into prayer here. Judas has been separated from the group, very much like you would separate the wheat from the chaff, you know, the goats from the sheep, and the... Um, tears from the wheat. This is a very intimate setting, and this is the essence of what a church is. The church, as you know, is the body of Christ, and it contains only believers, because only a believer can worship a God whom they know, a God who indwells them. So I, I say to the church, when they go out there and they want to invite non-believers in, I know they, they think they're doing, um, it's a noble cause to bring people in that they'll hear the gospel, but God says, go out there and preach the gospel to people that are out there. And then uh, they would come in if God is calling them, if they're drawn by the Lord, if they believe on the Lord. In like manner, people that are Christians, people who are part of the body of Christ, should attend church. Because you don't want a piece of the body out there running around by itself. It doesn't function well, nor does the corporate body function if it's missing, let's say, the eye. So it's not seeing things or it's missing an ear. And you're familiar with the uh, anatomical uh, analogy the Lord uses in, in 1 Corinthians. So everybody has a gift and everybody needs to come together that the body would function properly. So we can appreciate here as we move to this intimacy, as is articulated in the book of Acts, that Judas has been... Uh, separated, removed from the group. He has gone out to do what um, Satan hath put in his heart to do. Um, also, we can appreciate here a uh, big picture in terms of how the Lord is manifesting himself. They do call this the high priestly prayer. And we can see that throughout the course of the body of scriptures that there are three major types of Christ. One is prophet, the other is priest, and the third is king. And the Lord is speaking of his hour here, and we are going to appreciate that all of these Offices are kind of coming together in Christ in so much as that uh, during his hour, we can appreciate that he had been speaking first to his disciples, revealing his father's will to them. And that's what a prophet does. A prophet speaks on behalf of God to the people and declares God's will to them. And so in a general sense, 
All Christians are prophets. We, uh, I think I quoted last week Revelation 19.10 where it says the um, testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you are declaring truths about Christ, you are prophesying. You are speaking uh, from God to the people and teaching them about Christ. It doesn't mean you've got to know the future. It simply means that you are declaring uh, Christ. Now, as priests, the Lord is acting as a priest here because now he's going to make petition for the benefit of his disciples as also for himself. Um, he's going to make some petitions here. But that's what we do as saints too. You know, the scripture declares that we are priests and kings in Christ. And so when you um, pray for one of the people that, that you love, uh, somebody who the Lord has put on your heart, you are acting as a priest. You're petitioning between them and, and God. God hears you. God loves you. He hears your prayers. And so you will petition uh, for the benefit of those um, whom the Lord has placed on your heart. And the Lord is certainly doing that thing here. And we know that he's going to be, uh, he's a king. Of course, he's king of creation. He's king of king and lord of lords. But Pilate, Pontius Pilate, is going to declare that as well. He's going to declare him to be king. He's going to pray to him in front of his people. And he says, behold, your king. And then we know that Pilate is going to write in three languages. He's going to write in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So we're going to see all of these things come together here in terms of the Lord's hour. Now, we should appreciate that the word hour is not to be taken as a literal 60 minutes. It means the ordained period of time when Christ is going to be glorified and when he's going to glorify his Father is coming to fruition. So that's going to go from this point all the way, really, to include his uh, resurrection. So I want us to appreciate the intimacy that the disciples are sharing with the Lord in particular. And I talked about that in the past, but... um, here, it's almost as though they're standing on, on hallowed ground. Uh, this the, the intimacy of the setting. They are alone with the Son of God. Now, not in terms of before he was instructing them, but now he's opening, Christ is opening up his heart to his Father uh, within their, their hearing. He's alone with his sheep. Um, Judas has been separated. And what he is praying here applies exclusively to the elect. Of God, And he even says that. And that's, um, of course, undermines a lot of people's understandings of uh, whom Christ prays or petitions for. But he says that. I'm praying for the ones that you have given me and the ones that will believe on me based on their testimony. In other words, all he's, he's praying for all of the elect. He's praying for people that you and I will witness to um, if they hear the word. So all of those that, that become believers. And so that is whom he is praying for. Um, he loves his people. He had given thanks for his people when he broke bread with them in terms of the Lord table, uh, which just preceded this. So he has done all of the things uh, in the order that they do in the book of Acts here. Now in verse 1, as we open it here, he says, Father, the hour is come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. And so he refers to himself as thy son, Twice. He opens with the word Father, and so he opens up with his relationship to the Father that he is indeed is the Son of God. He's, his, he's God's unique Son. And I, I can't presume that you do this, but I would share with you that I do this, that I, when I pray to my Heavenly Father, um, I remind myself, because he already knows the relationship, but I remind myself that I am his son, that I am his child. And though I might be an errant child, I might be a disobedient child, I might stumble and fall in sin, nevertheless, I am his son. And because I'm his son, I know that gives me certain privileges. One, I certainly can go talk to him directly, and I can make my petitions to him. I know that he loves him. He loves all of his children. He is 
um, the epitome of what a father would be. I, I haven't met few people, with the exception of my children, who have a complaint about their father, who do not have a complaint about their father. I'm just kidding. Um, and so he is the perfect heavenly father, that in spite of my disobedience, I know he loves me, and I know that he is always going to do what is best for me and what is right for me, irrespective of my behavior. And I also know that he's going to spank me. And we read about that in the book of Hebrews. And believe me, he has done that. It says specifically, the Lord chasteneth whom he loves. And uh, I expect to, you know, he'll do that to those he loves. He's done it to me. So again, he sets this right before us here, that the relationship is quite real between Jesus and God the Father. Now, our relationship with, right, with him too is quite real, but it's slightly different. Jesus is said to be our brother. And so if he's our brother and he's the son of God, capital S, we are sons of God, little s. We are his children. Um, The Bible helps us to appreciate some of these things, but we should know that we are adopted children, even though it it goes beyond that. But we are adoptive children. Jesus, you'll recall, was adopted by his father, Joseph, husband to Mary. And so... uh, we can appreciate the parallel relationship that we might enjoy because we are adopted children as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, it makes reference to this adoption. It says, according as he, that would be God the Father, hath chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, in Christ. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It was God's good pleasure through Christ to uh, adopt us as children. So the Lord is making reference to a term that we employ in our society as well when uh, certain people go out and adopt children, um, accepting them as though they are their own and having legal authority and their legal relationship to them. But with respect to Jesus, uh, that relationship he has with the Father is very, um, is very real. And you'll recall that uh, Pastor Owen had talked about the three gene- genealogies of Jesus, and one of which is, of course, that he is related to um, Joseph by adoption, and the genealogy is given up to David, and then uh, he is of his mother, uh, Mary, and there is a flesh relationship there, a real one. It was her egg, and that uh, goes up the genealogy, and they converge in, uh, in David. And then it works its way all the way up to Adam, and whom Adam is said to be son of God. So there's a relationship all the way to God through Adam. But there's another one in that we can appreciate that the Holy Ghost came upon Mary and literally um, uh, fertilized the egg that was within her. So he is directly related to God the Father. He indeed is God the Father's son. And so, again, we see that here. He uses the term, thy son, twice, so that we would appreciate that. Um, But with respect to our adoption, again, it goes beyond that, because the Holy Ghost indwells us. We are said to be partakers, partakers of the divine nature. Christ himself was divine in his relationship with the Father, but we are partakers of that to a far lesser uh, degree, because the Holy Ghost indwells us. So, again, uh, we can appreciate the relationship that the Lord has with his heavenly Father, literally uh, being um, the uh, egg of Mary being fertilized by the Holy Ghost. So he does have a real relationship there. And the Lord refers to him in a couple of places um, as his son. You recall in John 3, 16, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, only, 
begotten Son. That would be Jesus. That is His Son. In Romans 8.32, He speaks about, and that He, that would be God the Father, spared not His own Son. Jesus is God's own Son. They are... um, they are related literally in the sense that they are one from the other. The Son came from the Father. Um, so it's good to have this relationship uh, set before us that we can appreciate that we would enter into the prayer after the example of uh, Christ, how he uh, enters into his prayer, setting this relationship uh, before us so that we can appreciate that, that we too are children of our Heavenly Father, and that's good to uh, um, um, appeal to that relationship. Now he says here, that the hour is come. He says, the hour is come. Now, this is an hour that is unparalleled in human history or even the history of the world. It's in a time that's, it's, uh, there has been no parallel occasion ever in the existence of any of the material world. It is a time when the Lord literally shook the earth and, uh, as this hour um, took place. It is a time when the light of the cosmos were hidden from the eyes of men. It was in a time where only those who had spiritual eyes could appreciate what was taking place uh, when Jesus was on the cross uh, being crucified. Um, it's interesting that the three, three out of the four Gospels speak of the earth being darkened, but this one does not. And that's because the Gospel of John sets before us Jesus as the light of the world. He's a light that shineth in a dark place. Um, and which the world, absent God's grace, could not uh, see. It is a light that men would withdraw themselves from because their deeds are evil and they love darkness rather than light. So John separates, it's different from the other Gospels in so much as Jesus is set before us many ways as the light of the world. Now, it is fitting here that Jesus would make reference to his hour at the very beginning of his prayer because as a high priest, as the high priest would make an offering for himself before he approached God, Jesus, in this reference to his hour, is making reference to the sacrifice that he's going to make. And we know that in the, in the book of Hebrews, it, it says that as well, that he offered up um, for himself in the context that our sins had been imputed to him, just as the high priest would. And then after he had made one um, sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And so just as the high priest offers first, so too does Christ make reference to his hour before this uh, is all going to take place and before he will be lifted up into glory. Um, With respect to the petitions that the Lord makes in these first several verses, first he's petitioning for himself and then he's going to petition for the elect. But we should appreciate the selfless, less nature of the prayer. He is ever the servant and he ever subordinates himself in his office to his father. In other words, he, he asks here, glorify me that I might glorify you. So glorify me so that I can glorify you. The, the object of the glorification is the father and not the son. And the Bible contains many promises uh, where um, God said he would glorify his son. Um, But nevertheless, he petitions for it. The Bible is full of promises that we bring forth to the Lord when we petition him in prayer, and it's proper and right to do so. In Psalm 89, verse 27, we read, Psalm 89, 27 says, Also I will make him, my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. So the Psalms are speaking about how Christ is going to be lifted up and glorified. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it says, And there was given him dominion and glory, and a kingdom 
and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And so these promises are set before in terms of how Christ will be glorified. Um, And I've said this in the past. There was never any point in time when how this was going to work itself out was ever in doubt. You know, I know some people... Um, when I was a young Christian, people would put that before me. And but I'm, as you study and know Christ more, it was never any question how this was going to play itself out. So, nevertheless, even though these promises are there, Jesus is ever the humble servant as he petitions his Father. So let's ask the question: How would the Father glorify the Son? How would He glorify Him? Well, He would help Him, and He would strengthen Him as He goes to the cross. Recall in John chapter 16, verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And so the Lord knows that his Father is going to strengthen him, he's going to help him, Um, And because of that help and that strength from the Father, he will indeed be successful in what he does. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 uh, through 9, we read one of those uh, last week, Isaiah 57 and 9. It says, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded. Because God is with me, because God is going to help me, I will not be confounded. This will come to fruition. I will be successful. Therefore, have I said... My face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Verse 8 He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Verse 9 Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? The answer is none. God the Father will help God the Son, and he will go to the cross, and he will be successful. As the Lord went to the cross in in context of the Father glorifying the Son, we should appreciate that as his mock trial um, carries itself out, uh, six different people, 12 different times, all declare him to be innocent. And so we can appreciate that the Lord was working in their hearts, that um, they would praise him in spite of all of the things that were taking uh, place around him. We can appreciate that these testimonies can be attributed to the Father glorifying the Son. Further, we can appreciate that when the Lord was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying um, to his Father, that the Lord sent an angel to him, strengthening him. We read that in Luke chapter 22, verses 42 through 44, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. In verse 43, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. So the Lord strengthened him, helped him, and as he says here, he shall not leave me alone because he will not be alone because the Father is with me. Ever strengthened by the Father, we read in Isaiah 53, 12, that he poured out his soul unto death. Now again, we can appreciate Pilate's declaration, being glorified by the Father, that he was a king. Behold, the king, he says as he prays him out before the people in John 19, 14. And while he was at the cross, the, um, 
centurion made a declaration and then those that were with him. It didn't just come from him. In Matthew 27, 54, it says, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, truly this was the son of God. So God has put these words in these people's mouths, glorifying Jesus, ever declaring him to be innocent in front of the the people. He glorified him by shaking the earth and the darkening of the sky, by the rending of the veil in the temple from the top to the bottom. And he was most certainly glorified when the thief on the cross publicly was converted to becoming a, um, a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Another thing we can appreciate as those that study the Bible is that the Lord wrote in advance many of the things that would take place throughout the course of his um, earthly ministry, and in particular, all of the things that were surrounding um, his crucifixion, his death, uh, burial, and resurrection. Um, In other words, he fulfilled prophecy. He told us in in advance what things were going to happen, laid it all out here in front of the scriptures that we might appreciate all the things that the Lord suffered and that it was the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God by which it happened. So he says in Psalm 22, 7 through 8, All that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He that trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him. Seeing he delighted in him. They literally said that when they walked by the cross. Psalm 22, 7 and 8 said that that's exactly what they were going to say. And they surely did. And before crucifixion was known as a means of capital punishment, the Lord wrote also in Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18, about the things that he would suffer in the flesh, the things that he would feel. In verse 14 of Psalm 22, he says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. All of these things were uh, set out uh, before us well in advance before crucifixion was a means of death. And these are the things that the Lord felt and that he suffered when he was on the cross. They parted my garments among them and they cast lots upon my vesture. This we know, of course, they did um, literally. Um, In Isaiah 53, 9, we read that he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. And so the Lord was literally buried in the grave uh, um, with the wicked, meaning that he was on the cross, he was killed, but that in the rich in his death, he was in a tomb that no man had ever lain before. Um, So all of these prophecies were set before us and uh, fulfilled by God the Father, again, helping us to appreciate how the Father had glorified the Son. And then finally, of course, we move to his resurrection, and the, um, which the Lord raised him from the dead, and he raised him from the dead because he had accomplished the redemption of all of his people. He had paid the penalty required for our sin. So it evinced God's satisfaction with all that Jesus had done and that he had suffered. Isaiah 53.11 says, He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. Jesus, um, God the Father, satisfied with God the Son, what he'd accomplished, raised him up from the dead. And so all of these things we can appreciate that God the Father 
glorified God the Son. And how did the Lord glorify the Father? By delivering unto him a people that were meet for eternal union and fellowship with God the Father. Um, God the Father was glorified in the revelation and the exercise, the demonstration of his justice and his judgment. These things were seen on the cross of Christ. God judged sin and meted out his judgment due sin, pouring his wrath upon his son due our sin. And, but yet, nevertheless, uh, or this is an example of it, of God's great wisdom, for God made a way to reconcile to himself a people that were guilty of violating his holy law. And this he did through the person of Christ in himself. So at the cross, to the glory of the Father, we see what is written in Psalm 85, verse 10. In Psalm 85, verse 10, it says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In the Lord's hour, we see simultaneously the righteous judgment and justice of God and his mercy on the elect who are then at peace with God because their sins were imputed to Christ Jesus and the righteousness of God was imputed to them. God has set this all out um, from before the foundation of the world. Indeed, Christ is a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world that he could be just and merciful at the same time. He would uh, pour his judgment and wrath out on his son and at the same time have mercy upon us. And yet he would not transgress his own law or his own rules that he had set up. Because we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he hath made him, that would be Christ Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so I've talked about that in the past, that Jesus not only bore our sins, but he bore the guilt associated with those sins because all of our sins were imputed to him as though he himself had committed them and his righteousness is imputed to us as though we were ever his righteous and obedient um, on children. So when he looks upon us, what does he see? He sees his son whom he loves. And when he looked upon Christ on the cross, what did he see? He saw us and our sins in him. So we see mercy for those and only for those that were given to the Son by the Father. And in this the Father is glorified, for great is his mercy, which indeed the psalmist says, his mercy endureth forever. So because of what God has done, we as people are in truth the objects of his mercy in a divine, righteous, judicial system that justifies the objects of his mercy through faith in his Son. And in this, the Father is glorified. Um, God indeed answers all of Jesus' petitions in his prayer here in John chapter 17. And Christ, again, is ever our example, subordinating himself to the Father as the relationship set forth before us here would imply. Jesus, the Son seeks to glorify the Father, and so should we in all that we do. In uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 16, it says of us that we should let our lights so shine before men that they may see our good works and do what? Not glorify us, glorify our Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12 says something similar. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. So everything that we would do on this earth would be to the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink, whatsoever we do, we always do it to the glory of God. He is the object of our love and our affections and our desire should be to glorify him. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get through verse 2. I was planning to go into verse 5, but that's not going to happen today. Verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Can you appreciate the subordinate nature of this petition as well? We see that God has given Jesus power over all flesh, and because of this, Jesus makes another petition that he would give eternal life to all those whom the Father has given him. So whatever imagery the world sets before us as becoming the Lord Jesus Christ, I would submit to us that it fails to communicate God the Father's vested authority in Christ. In other words, the wimpy Jesus set before us is not indicative of the power and authority that rests in Christ. The Father has given all judgment to Christ. In Acts 10.42, it says that he was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. Here we read that the Father has given him power over all flesh, a portion of which we had seen recently when he called dead Lazarus forth from the grave. God makes alive whomever he will, and he puts those in the grave whomever he will. He has power over all flesh. We saw that with respect to Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Ghost, and they fell down dead. Whatever words came out of their mouth, it was their last spoken word, It was the last breath, and they dropped down dead. By him, by Jesus, all things consist. And that means our very life, all of the atoms are held together by him. And in any moment, he can take the breath of life out of us, and we will fall down dead. Um, The authority that Jesus has is not limited to the flesh, although that's set before us here. Keep in mind that he spoke everything into existence. In him, bodily, dwelled all the fullness of the Godhead. He never stopped being God. He never stopped being equal with God. As creator, he has authority over all things. In Matthew 28, 18, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 1 Peter 3, 22, speaking of Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Colossians 2.10, you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and powers. So he's the head of all principalities and powers, whether they be visible or invisible, uh, visible, whether they be uh, temporal or eternal. He is the head of all principalities and power. And this is something I would have you um, think about. You recall when Satan took Jesus up into a mountain to show him the glory of all the world. What did he say to him? He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan's the prince of the power of the air. He is the, quote, God of this world, and yet he was subject to Jesus while Jesus walked in the flesh. Before Jesus went to the cross, he was, Satan was subject to him. That, those four words, five words have been taken out of most Bibles, but they're very important words because they would have us appreciate that Satan was ever subordinate and subject to Jesus. Now, having been given authority over all flesh um, by the Father, Coincidental with his glorification of the Father through the cross, Jesus petitions the Father that he, Jesus, give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. Now, this requires 
um, that Jesus be glorified on the cross, as we've already uh, talked about. There's a parallel track here. God gives this to Jesus, but yet Jesus earns it also. He earns it by his obedience. Um, Because we're running out of time, I'm not going to read all of Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 through 11, but we can appreciate that Jesus was obedient. He stepped out of his glory willfully. He was subject, um, became obedient unto death. It says here, even the death of the cross. And because of all of this, it says, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hebrews 2.10 and in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about how Jesus, by virtue of his obedience and the things that he suffered, bringing many sons to glory, he, as their captain, was made perfect. Not that he was lacking anything, but perfectly qualified through his obedience to the the Father. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered and being made perfect, in other words, perfectly qualified, he became the author of eternal salvation to them that obey him. Now, just one more thing I'll cover, and then we'll we'll be done. Uh, I want us to appreciate here that, um, that he would give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. Eternal life, we should ever appreciate, is a gift of God to us. There's not a thing that we could do or ever could do to earn it. To, uh, earn it. Um, Romans uh, chapter 3 and chapter 6 lays that, this out very clearly. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. We are justified freely by the grace of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we'd appreciate, as he's speaking here in verse 2 here, that he's going, he's going to give eternal life to those whom the Father has given him. So I'm going to stop there, and next week we'll talk about eternal life and what that is and what it means. I have used verse seven, verse 3 there many times on Christmas cards that we send out. I like to put that on the Christmas card because it is such a pregnant verse. It says so much in it about how people should appreciate who Christ is that I put that on Christmas cards. So um, we'll close there, and then next week we'll pick this up. Amen. Mm-hmm.